Fantasy Animation is an online educational resource dedicated to examining the relationship between fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation. As well as this podcast, Fantasy Animation publishes a weekly blog featuring regular contributions from professional animators and academics and offering up creative insight into the history, theory and practice of making fantasy stories through cell, stop motion and digital animation. So, whether you're a budding creative, a fan, a student or a researcher interested in these overlapping medias, mediums and genres, be sure to find out more at fantasy-animation.org. But for now, do enjoy the show. Hello everybody and welcome to the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast with me, Chris Holiday, And me, Alex Holgen. So for this episode we've got a real treat. Um, it's On the one hand we're talking about a film uh, that hopefully a lot of our listeners will have seen and be familiar with, Captain Marvel from 2019. So lots to, lots to sort of say about um, Marvel and, and superheroes and, and all kinds of things. But um, we're delighted to be joined by some special guests that are going to talk to us a little bit about the production side of things. VFX uh, is obviously a key element uh, of the film and it's, it's something that, that I'm really excited to sort of uh, talk about with my animation hat on. Um, Alex, obviously this is a fantasy film as well. So are there sort of some, some bits and bobs that you'd like to, to introduce quickly? Oh, yes, absolutely. I'm excited to talk about all manner of uh, things in terms of the way the film weaves sort of ideas of gender and um, ideas of fantasy together along with VFX and probably, you know, what these episodes are like. I'm going to learn a lot about how VFX are actually made because I don't understand any of it at this point. So great. Uh, I get to learn along with the listener here. Um, so we're thrilled to be joined by um, Christine Neumann and Dominic Zimmler from Trickster, who are a German VFX studio um, based in Munich. Uh, so Christine was the VFX producer uh, on Captain Marvel, and she's now the head of production at Trickster. Uh, and Dominic is the VFX supervisor. So uh, Christine, Dominic, thank you so much for for kind of coming to talk to us about uh, well Captain Marvel, VFX, and a bit of Goose. Hopefully, You're very very happy to be here. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Well, no, it's a, it's a, it's kind of a real treat because we've got a, we've had a couple of blog posts on our website. Um, we've had a review of Captain Marvel, and actually, we've recently had a post by one of our colleagues um, on the film as an adaptation and one of the ways in for thinking about the film as an adaptation um is through this idea of of uh i guess multiple identities and obviously one of the ways that that the uh, review or the piece talks about that is in relation to uh, goose as a as a character and as a as a flirkin and so i'm really excited to be able to kind of get into that because i also know it's a film that that a lot of um listeners and, and obviously visitors to the site are um, kind of like it's an important film you know it's a, a sort of really important film I think within the context of Marvel but just as a, a sort of kicking off question um, could you explain a little bit about your roles on the film obviously you um, I imagine you had lots of different hats on during the course of the, the production of the, the film but give us a flavor of what you were, were sort of doing day to day with regards to, to kind of Captain Marvel. Mm-hmm. Yeah so as my uh, role as a VFX producer I was involved from in the project from beginning to end, pretty much. So I started out with bidding a couple of sequences um, based on sometimes it was a script or it could also have been already a previous that Marvel provided us with. And yeah, we would settle down some numbers and then uh, we had our what we call initial award, which basically gives us a green light to uh, go on board of the show. And yeah, throughout the course of the show, I was um, yeah in charge of the budget and also the schedule, of course, with the help of a big production team behind me. Um, yeah, and at the end of the show, uh, it's always kind of a relief when that movie is shown on the big screen um, and you have uh, yeah a big team behind you and you can like watch this movie finally. <laughs> In, in the cinema, which, yeah, at the moment we don't really get to do that, um, but we, we hope we can be back in the cinema soon. Yeah, yeah. So actually talking about Captain Marvel brings back memories of a time where we could then go to the cinema and, and, and watch it, essentially. Um, I mean, I've already got a question about um, about previs and things like that, but um, I will leave, we'll park that for, for the time being, as I know Alex also has lots of questions about kind of the way that VFX work. Um, so Dominic, um, with regards to your 
role on the film? Whereabouts do you sit within this sort of big, big kind of multi-person production? So basically, I'm um, working very closely with Christina. So once we, we talk about the initial bits and um, have a look at the previous, and basically we're discussing um, about how we can do them, what team we need to have, um, and basically the visual and um, technical demands um, of the whole thing. And then during the production, I'm basically responsible for all the visual output. So I'm working with, um, of course, we have huge departments and in every department we have supervisors and leads and we all together basically um, try to create the vision of the client. So what they had in mind, and um, I'm talking basically to the client from visual aspects and interpret um, what they want towards the team and with the team. And we're basically um, creating results and sending it back and see um, if we basically hit it or if we need to refine it. Um, so um, basically, I'm, I'm leading the team creatively and towards the client and representing also a little bit the client towards the team um, to fulfill their vision. So, so Chris is right. I already have about 10 questions. So let's make sure I keep up here. So um, when I've given to understand having had a few of these conversations, when you, um, Christine, you mentioned pitching. So there's a stage in the production process. Is it where, where an effects uh, studio like yourselves would pitch to Marvel about what kind of vision or what kind of work you could do? Could you just unpack what that would, would look like for our listeners? Yeah, it might happen in, in different ways. So I think after we've been working with Marvel for, for quite some years now, they already know us and they know what we're good at. They know our departments and how they work like. Um, so, so there's not so much pitching involved anymore. We basically get a request that we should bid on a certain sequence in a film. Um, and Marvel already has in mind, oh, Trickster could be good for this or good for that. And they will distribute the work to, to different vendors. So there's always, I want to say, around maybe 10 vendors on Something a, like that, a that, Marvel yeah. movie. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the, the producer on the client side decides which content goes to which company. Um, we also had one, one event on, I think it was on Ant-Man, where we did a pitch uh, for a specific short sequence. Exactly. That's mostly when you go basically a little bit out of your comfort zone. So, um, for example, Marvel knows us for doing certain things very well, um, we hope at least. <laughs> um, and then sometimes you want to take on a new challenge and then basically we sometimes lean in a little bit more and try to prove it like on a small sequence or on um, like an animation even or a small simulation to show that we would be capable of doing that and send it in so basically that we expand a little bit how we are received um, on their side i would mm -hmm. say so you, you mentioned your sort of industrial relationship with marvel um so did that begin you said that you pitched something for ant-man did it sort of begin with ant-man is that was that your first sort of um or does it sort of go further back obviously i know that that um yeah as alex said from some of, of our previous episodes I, I you know the 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 way that labor is organized within the vfx industry is sort of super fascinating um and yeah it w was your how did your relationship with marvel sort of start that sort of ultimately leads to this to this film uh something like captain marvel what was your sort of relationship with them up to this point uh, actually, our relationship with Marvel, as far as I remember, this quite far back. So I think it was Captain America 1, where we had um, a small sequence. Yes, yeah, we are um, basically back then, um, we did um, some comfort, some set extensions, some matte painting. Um, it was a quite small sequence. And ever since, we're kind of evolving um, to, to more demanding work, um, I would say. Um, I think the second then was um, Iron Man 2, where we provided animation to be um, or contribute to animation and match moves. So basically, we are expanding a little bit further and further with every show, but we have quite a long-standing relationship with Marvel uh, in this regard. And we are always happy that they give us new chances. So th that's a great thing, actually, that this evolution of what we're capable of doing, because also Trickster grew as a company over the time, was basically supported um, by Marvel to give us work that we can prove ourselves on. So this was really a very, very nice relationship um, always. Okay, so you've you've got the... you've Okay, so we would like you to pitch for Captain uh, Marvel and based on prior work you've done. So then what do they go? What we need you to do is make an alien cat uh, kill... Uh, half the you know the hordes of villains at the end, or like so. So like, how when they give you a brief, how specific is that brief? Are they very clear on what they want? Um, are they willing for you to sort of show them what it would look like? What's you know what? what how does that then work? 
I think the initial brief for, for Goose in that case was really that it's a photorealistic cat and because the cat on set wouldn't do certain things, um, it was clear that we needed a CG replacement. So we were asked to build that asset. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't think if we knew at the beginning that it was like an alien cat or if that kind of unraveled. I, th I think it was um, was mentioned that it is basically a flurkin, not a cat. But the main intent at the beginning was because um, for the most time of the movie, Goose is a cat or um, the, the main cat was called Reggie, um, the actor cat basically. Um, the point is, I think whoever had a cat at home know that they are not the most reliable animals. So uh, they have a certain mind on their own and it's kind of risky to have um, one on set and hoping that for I don't know how many shooting days it would do exactly what you want to. So they approached us with the primary goal of recreating this photorealistic cat um, so that they can use it side by side with the real cat that they intended to use. Um, it was not clear at the beginning um, to what extent and then how many shots, but mostly like we want to have a fallback solution in cat, the cat runs away and it's not seen again. <laughs> I, lo I love that idea that the cat sort of, you know, is a trouble on set and the cat's causing trouble again. And so we need the, the digital cat to replace. Um, I mean, I had, I had a couple of questions about, uh, you know, and we've, I think on previous episodes, we've, we've, you know, we've covered a range of visual effects and a range of kind of creatures and a range of creations and monsters and, and all those sorts of things that I think are, sort of uh, par for the course with regards to an animated fantasy but obviously there are some challenges photorealism as you you know if, if you're designing and trying to animate a, a photorealistic cat and you called it an asset is that right that's how you would call an object or a digital artifact or something um but obviously there are kind of challenges because we are what 2019 the film's released we've got a good sort of 30 40 years of digital technology that is hopefully ever increasing or expanding or, or making available that kind of realism that you need. But presumably, it's much more difficult to create an asset that that is so recognisable because we all know what a cat looks like. We we don't know what a dinosaur looks like or a monster or a... And so there's... Flurgan. Yeah, <laughs> we, we don't know what a flurgan looks like. So I, I'm just sort of... Is that is it more challenging to create an asset or create a digital object that is photorealistic, and especially of, an, of a domestic cat, which is what the flurkin spend, goose spends a lot of time looking like? Presumably, there's more of a challenge to create something that we all recognise like a cat than there is a far out monster with tentacles and essentially what what the flurkin would come to be. Is there is it sort of is there a challenge within representing the everyday because because it's so everyday to us and we see it all the time. And, and so our judgment is going to be sort of sharper because we know what cats look like. Um, I think it definitely is um, because, as you mentioned, um, cats and probably also dogs are very hard to recreate. And the um, most demanding thing, as we all know, is a human because humans are just insanely good in judging if a human is looking all right, basically. Um, and there's really small subtleties that um, can screw up the entire interpretation of how a human should look like. And I think it's also true for a cat because probably most people can really describe what a cat does and how a cat does things. But most people have a feeling that it's wrong if it's wrong, basically. So I think it's it's quite challenging. What was very good on uh, in this case is that, or very good and very demanding on the other side was that we had a real cat to match too. So basically we um, uh, we had a fantastic uh, initial package for that. So we had reference photographies, whatever could be shot from the cat was shot. We had um, a lot of animations where they had an animal trainer basically um, having the cat walking through the picture, trying to play with it, etc. in controlled lighting environments so that we could um, recreate this so that we could have a look what this cat is, uh, exactly is doing. Um, and we even got a LiDAR scan. So basically they did a 3D can of a scan of the cat, I think based on photogrammetry. Um, so that we really had all the material that we needed to recreate it from a visual point of view. Um, this was fantastic because there is just a complexity that if you just imagine a cat and look at references, you're still always interpreting. And there was not a lot of interpreting going on in this cat. We know exactly if our fur, for example, the chest um, is not looking exactly like the reference. It just doesn't look right in this, um, not having the same complexity, and we are already set up for failure if we want to move it. Um, and I think what we learned then once we created the asset, um, 
in a still way and um, it was kind of convincing. What we learned a lot during the show is how cat moves um, because there's also an interpretation of how, um, how what a cat, for, for example, we learned that a cat doesn't really roll the eyeballs balls a lot. So they don't look to the side by moving the eyes to the side, but they move rather the head. Um, they don't do very much smooth in between um, movements, but they do, for example, more a pose to pose movement instead of, so they're basically looking here and then they're looking there and they're not kind of like smoothly interpolating between these. Um, there's a way how they jump, how they land, how, they, uh, how the whole body mechanics is working. And I think this is all, especially with, um, with people who had a cat, and I think there's quite a lot of them, they feel that it's um, not working. And um, also the team was reacting immediately. This is somehow wrong. And then it's really you start to analyze and go through it. And you, you look at reference clips and try to find out what it is that makes you feel uncomfortable when you look at the cat. So I think it is definitely a lot more challenging in its way to get a correct behavior. More abstract things like dinosaurs have probably a lot of other problems, for example, that you don't know how it's supposed to look like, <laughs> you need to find this out. But this really, the strong connection with the human being is, I think, especially with cats and dogs, probably, and humans itself, is very, very challenging. Yeah, well, I think that speaks to a broader sort of the way that audiences are going to engage with special effects. And, and cer certainly early writing on special effects talks about the role of the spectator and judgment and tolerance and the kinds of taste cultures that we have when we confronted with a digital. And this goes back 20, 30 years when we're first confronted with the, the very first or cinemas, first digital images. We immediately make the kinds of judgments that you have to overcome as well i was going to say as an animator but that's not how you've described yourself but you've also mentioned animation a couple of times you started you said that you were you had some previs provided by marvel um and then you said uh that as part of your work or within that sort of vfx structure and and the, this sort of industrial relationship that you also were provided with animations and so i'm sort of really interested in the role of animation in all of this whether you consider yourselves animators obviously you're working with animation and so there's sort of bigger questions about how the industry the distinction that we often return to on this podcast between kind of animation and visual effects and where's the line be between them because I find it interesting that you mention animation as part of your process um where, what, what sort of what, what's your view on on that that distinction perhaps between animation vfx how because you work with animation you obviously animate yourself so I'm really interested in that relationship yeah, so there's these two different kind of films, I would say, where you have the feature animation and then you have the VFX. And inside the VFX, we have to, we have our animation department. Um, and then eventually, you might not even be that aware of it when you see the final picture and the outcome of it. But um, it's really important that we, in case of the cat, that we got the movement right and that you really had that first like step in, in a good place because then when you would go into rendering you would see all the issues that might be happening and sometimes we have to go back into animation and you know revert some things um yeah and i think the team did a really good job here because whenever i walked upstairs and i saw the animation department they were looking at youtube videos of cats um doing the crazy things <laughs> and they were trying to oh, match they've, with... they've, they've conned you there christine <laughs> <laughs> so yeah um they were trying to match just how a cat would behave and i think that was a really important part to make this as realistic as possible yeah and um, so do the so we, we basically also for these departments, we have also, so our departments are very specialized. So for example, our animation department is basically consisting of animators. So the same people that would, for example, work on a feature animation part, but it's a department itself. And here, um, this is led for the show was um, led by Simone Kraus Taubensend and our lead animator, Grant Harris. So Simone was the animation supervisor and they basically with their team work like, um, I would say, yeah, like a regular animation department within the context of a VFX facility, basically. So, so just for my clarity, what so what the why would you go to the animation department for the for certain types of labor? Is it when you're trying to get a character to move? The that's the, you know the, the very that is the animation going on, and then would the VFX team be more in charge of the the look? If I if I can be as crude as that, or is it something more nuanced than that? Um, it's. So basically, the term VFX probably is describing all departments we're working with. So it's like we have an animation department, for example. We have one department that's taking care of cameras and layout so that everything is at the correct location. 
we have one department that's um, taking, for example, animation caches and does simulation at top, um, or do, for example, another department that does um, explosions, sparks, um, and rigid body dynamics, for example, this is the FX department. Um, we have a lighting department and the look dev department is creating the look of the things. And we have a compositing department where everything is coming together. And not to forget the rigging department that gives animation the, um, the ability to animate stuff at all in this um, uh, very technical um, way we're doing it. So uh, with 3D animation. So all of this I would consider visual effects and it's kind of converging. It's just that animation has probably the longest tradition or one of the longest traditions um, and this kind of now merging into this visual effects team that we have as a whole. So so all of these people, just for my benefit, are still working on software on computers. You're not, I'm now picturing physical lights going up in the studio and, and you know, trying to shoot a flurgan with a, with a, with a traditional three key lighting. We're all talking about people skilled in VF, uh, VFX, I guess, but just through different components of the VFX sort of broken down into different. Exactly. Okay. So, so that, so, okay. Wow. Okay. So that asks some really interesting questions about sort of, um, the way we as as film studies people talk about these things because you know we we found ourselves perennially um kind of concerned or anxious about this idea of sort of what what vfx in this catch-all term does to its relationship to the quote-unquote real world and there's like you know lots of essays that are written um on the fact that you know vfx essentially severs something that was once true of cinema to do with photography and that cinema once used to capture moments in space and time and you couldn't do anything with them and there was no interpretation i think you used that word dominic um earlier um and that there was something inherently sort of real about cinema because it whatever it was it was the thing it was when you filmed it um, but it sounds like, and, and, and there's lots of anxiety about like, and, you know, then VFX came along and spoiled it all because now you can make whatever you want. You can make a flurgan on screen if you wish. Um, but it sounds like most of the processes you just listed out there are still rooted in this idea of trying to reproduce the real world rather than interpret the real world. Um, you know, from, from scanning the cat, you were saying like you had to scan it physically and keep hold of that, what we would call indexical link to reality in order for it to make sense, for it to be processable, in order for viewers to go with it. And it was only, was it the animation department, was the only department that you started to say there was an element of interpretation in terms of the movement, or have I mis misheard or misremembered there? So I would say that, um, I think you're right, that our primary goal is basically to recreate a virtual reality. So basically, uh, I think um, it was it was said before, if we do our job correctly, then no one sees what we did. And this is basically our goal. That's why we try to make everything we're doing um, as much as we can and as much as technology allows, um, as plausible and, and realistic as possible. So we try to, for example, on set, um, we capture high dynamic range images of the lighting situation so that we can one-to-one -one recreate it in the virtual world. We are doing, um, we are creating 3D scans of the set so that we can better align our cameras to it, so that we can one-to-one -one recreate um, the cameras. And the point is there's, of course, always a certain interpretation. This is like, I imagine like when a DOP um, sets up uh, a lighting scenario and it's in a studio and they're supposed to do daylight. I think he would also interpret in a certain way or give it as his artistic touch, um, but in a very subtle way to make it filmic, to make it um, in a filmic world photographic. And I think this is also what we are doing. Um, we are trying, of course, to, recre um, to recreate it, but we also try to do a nice picture. So um, I think there is a certain interpretation that cannot go too far because we always want to create a realistic output. Um, but we try to be deeply grounded in reality to be convincing. And I think when the animation department is interpreting, I think that's one of the departments that is creating um, the animation from scratch usually, or um, sometimes from motion capture and, and uh, interpret that. But there's, of course, this is like an acting performance. So this is the part where you really, um, but also within this um, ground, being grounded in reality, but this is an acting performance and tries to create an, uh, a living, performance of a, of a creature that makes sense, that feels right, that's correct. But of course, there's always human interpretation because you want it to act in a certain way. Yeah, and sometimes it's funny because you can tell who was the animator of a certain shot. So you would yeah. kind of, even though it's the cat, you would be like, oh, he was animating this. I can totally see his performance there. So that's a funny part of it. 
So I had about a thousand questions based on what you just said. So you can strap in for this. But I had a note about performance and I put I'd written performance down and I put a question mark and I was going to ask obviously the role of performance and animation and, and who is the performer and all these kinds of these are big, big kind of questions. Um, but I it actually comes out of something that you said that you're, you're that you're not just focused on the character. So part of your job is obviously you are, you know, we're looking at Goose the cat as a character, but presumably part of the way that you're picking up, you talked about eyes and movement and you're trying to create a performance out of that three-dimensional virtual or digital asset. But am I right in thinking that you, as part of that, you're not just, you know, you said that you build a set or you scan the set, uh, that you're also in charge of kind of cameras and lighting as well. So when it, so you're not just... I guess what I'm saying is that when we think about performance then within the context of the digital, it's not just about the character. We now need to think about lighting and the set and the camera because you're also in charge of those elements as well to make it read realistically. Um, it's it's depending a little bit. So, for example, sometimes we have a shot where we go entirely um, in the CG world, so we have no played shot for it. And then I would say we are responsible for doing the camera, creating the lighting, of course, always in um, presenting it to the directors and the creatives of a movie to see if we are going on the right track. Um, but basically, then we would be responsible for that. Um, in the other parts, it's more recreating it virtually. So um, we are, of course, always... Um, for example, if we there's supposed to be a CG creature in a set, we do an, a high dynamic range image. We see how the illumination was on set, um, and we recreate the camera. But then it um, can be that we add an additional light to emphasize the performance. We change the light, we change the exposure a tiny bit. Um, but it's mostly the first goal is to recreate the environment as it was defined on set by the DOP, by the um, people working in lighting there, and we recreate it. And then we try to make it. Um, if, for example, sometimes it works just um, uh, with, the, with the recreation of set lighting, but then we, of course, are also um, in, in, um, encouraged to integrate it, to give it a little bit of a notch um, to make the performance work better, to make the, um, the environment work better, to whatever we're lighting that it's working um, in the context of the movie. Yeah, I mean, I noticed when I was looking at your... Um, I found on online in various places the sort of trickster production reel and, and the kinds of shots that you worked on. And I could definitely see a split between sort of three-dimensional sets, i.e. entirely CG, I think you said entirely virtual sets um, and characters, uh, and moments where you were substituting in sort of uh, kind of green screen models or because or, there was an object obviously on set and you then had to... And you said that those were plates... So you would receive those plates with the green, you know, tennis ball on a stick or something and then animate over them or put effects over the top of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes these these props or like placeholders would be used on set so that the actors have something to hold or to act with. So this was pretty useful in, uh, in Captain Marvel that we had always this reference uh, item in there where we knew where the hands of the actor is going to be in. So perhaps to put some of the ideas we're talking about in general, like into specifics in the film. Um, so to me, there are sort of almost three gradients of goose, if you will, the gradients of goose. And there's the sort of shots where you've got sort of, I don't know, Samuel L. Jackson holding um, goose sort of as a cat. And I could imagine, but I'm willing to be corrected, that might be a, a real cat on set, or I guess he's either that or he's holding um, a something some sort of green screen that you then put the cat in so i'd like to know a little bit about those shots because they seem to be the ones that seem most um uh photorealistic most un unneeding of any effects from the casual lay um viewers point of view then of course you've got the other extreme which is sort of the shots where where goose turns out to be an alien space creature and you've got all the cool like tentacles flying out and and sucking people up and throwing them around the room and you've got that problem of the live action versus the digital i'm expecting those are almost certainly uh all digital and you've got a little bit more license to imagine you know me with my fantasy hat on to imagine and play and and, and be a bit more sort of 
um, let go and go go full gun ho on those sort of sequences. And then there's a sequence that's somewhere in the middle, like say when they do their sort of um, takeoff and there's all the the CG, and you've got the scene where Goose sort of you get a gag where Goose sort of flies to the back of the um, of the shot and is like being held like like someone like um, in CGI with like their cheeks being pushed back and everything, um, which are almost the most interesting because I'd love to know what the interplay between uh, photo realism and sort of imaginative, let's just go for it and, and play on that is because on the one hand it is very realistic and on the other hand it's it can't be too realistic because i don't think we'd all want to see a cat really suffer um that kind of force on screen so could just talk us through sort of you know where you were with that shot maybe in terms because it might unpack a lot of the, the the different types of goose that are on screen here um so so basically um first of all the the moments where the cat turns flirting um these were done by lm so we, oh okay yeah, right, so sorry. we only took care of the the realistic quote unquote uh, uh cat shots okay. um and we shared our asset with them so basically they took our cat and um gave it the Davy Jones moments, basically. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, essentially, uh, the, the shot you mentioned where, where Goose is pressed against this box in the airplane, this was actually one of the shots I think our animators worked the longest on, mm-hmm. I would say. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> because it is a very thin line between looking nice and comical, painful and cartoony. And this is a very thin line to go for. So um, basically that the people still believe that this is, could be a real cat, that it's funny so that it doesn't look painful, and that we don't go overboard, um, that, for example, um, people are thinking, ah, oh, this is a cartoon, we don't believe this anymore. And this is, I think, um, this was um, this was very demanding in this aspect to find this thin, thin line. And we also, this was one of the shots we learned a lot um, about how a cat moves, because we had, at the beginning, we had, for example, the cat staring down with the, airball, uh, with the eyeballs, like tilted in one direction. And we always feel, felt uncomfortable look, looking at the shot and we thought, this is not looking right, this is not looking right. And then we basically removed bits by bits of animation to, um, to find a good spot, how this would be more cat-like, but still interpreted as funny by the audience. So this was a, uh, was a very demanding shot in this regard. And then, of course, also the deformation. At one point, it does look painful what a cat does. I mean, I grew up with cats and they have a few postures where they seem comfortable, where I thought this cannot be, but (laughs) they are much more flexible than one thinks. Um, But this was also another thing, how you would interpret how this cat is on the box there. And um, is this readable as a naturalistic cat? So this was really, as you say, like one special moment by itself, um, just to get from from the realistic cat to a character cat, but still trying to stick to this real world. Yeah, it's a it's a great little moment because you you do like you can see there is a certain amount of um, declaring the artifice going on because you know there's a just a whisper of sort of you know Tom and Jerry or something like that in mm. in the cat, and that really is quite helpful as the viewer. But it's it there must be such a balancing act between that and yes, completely giving up any sense that this is a photorealistic cat that's really on a set that the character that the actors are really reacting to. And I assume once you shatter that, you've shattered it for the rest of the movie, really, because then you've got yes, exactly. uh, then you've got Jar Jar Binks or something, you know from VFX history that's gone down in, in, you know, as one of these out of sorts characters. Um, so yeah, like it's, um, yeah, it's great. Really interesting moment. And, and, and there's a, there's an element of the cartoonish in a good way that I just noticed that you, you'd put in there. It's glad to hear that that reflects your own. I'd like to just on that. Cause I was, I thought, thought it was interesting about, and presumably this is your, your then role, Christine, with regards to um, ensuring that shots don't take too, cause you mentioned this thing about, we learned a lot on this particular shot and it took one of the longest and presumably your role is to sort of make sure that things are ticking over or, or cause I, I think I'm sort of interested in, in when animators and when visual effects artists say that things, because obviously all of this is part of a process of discovery and you're discovering things about things and things about cats and using your own reference points in the animation and the, the sort of um, effects imagery that you're, that you're sort of creating and you're only working with certain kinds of plates or you're working with um, material and you're trying to bring it all together. And presumably part of your role then on this as the VFX producer was to, to sort of organise and marshal that kind of division between shots or shots some shots that we knew were going to take a long time and some that is that is that sort of how how it sort of worked in in the 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 organization of of 
certain kinds of effect sequences that you are in charge of that you're sort of trying to to make sure things all run to schedule yeah that's definitely part of it that you ensure to make a proper plan and leave some time for especially these critical shots i would say and then also you learn along the go like you you will learn on the go what is happening with certain shots so my favorite ones were when goose was just walking somewhere in the room <laughs> not touching anything um, and I realized that whenever uh, Goose was picked up, it was becoming, uh, it was taking longer and longer. And in terms of that uh, one shot that you mentioned, where she's kind of pressed against the box, I think that you will just anticipate that this is something complicated and you maybe scrape off a little money here and a little money there and you just make sure that it go goes all into the development of this, of this special thing. Um, and sometimes things also tend to be easier than anticipated. So it's, it's kind of a good mix, I think. Um, and yeah, I had, uh, I think I had a really good time watching Goose and how it got more efficient and more efficient. So in the beginning, I was a little scared, like, oh, are we going to get this looking real? But then one time you come into the review room and you're like, oh, this looks like a real one. So cool. We're all good. And then, yeah, you kind of just shift your budget around from here to there, wherever the fire burns in that moment. I think it was always a very good benchmark. If she came into the cinema and said, hey, this looks real, then I was like, yes. <laughs> I like that. Wherever the fire's burning. Yeah. So wherever the fire burns, you, uh, you're kind of putting out those fires during production. Um, so, But that's, again, it goes back to this point about invisibility, Dominic, that you mentioned. If you've done your job well, people won't see. And obviously that that in many ways that undoes the very notion of special <laughs> i.e what makes an effect special well surely then what makes an effect special is that we don't see it so therefore why why is it special and, and it's sort of and i think that's really that's an interesting way this idea of kind of taste as i said and, and the connoisseurship that we have as an audience for these especially marvel movies you know this is number 21 in the in the series so i think we know what we're getting by by this point um um and it was obviously the the studio's last marvel's last film before the sort of capstone film avengers endgame and so there's a lot riding on this film in general um and so but i think i'm i'm i like the idea that that there's a certain degree of invisibility to your work that you're trying to you're working in in kind of special effects or visual effects um but what you're also trying to do is hide the cuts and hide the seams and, and that and that becomes presumably a bit of a challenge to provide continuity across individual shots where different animators are working on different things and and, and suddenly the, the cat has to be unified across different shots that might have been produced months weeks months in a you know apart and and that's part of the challenge of getting everything sort of seamless and invisible which seem, as I said, seems to go against this side of special. What your role is is essentially doing is is make, and I don't, you know, this is going to sound awful, but making things less special and sort of invisible. I would say, um, you're, yeah, yes, you're right. It's 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 a kind of like a little. Bit <laughs> you're of still special, obviously. I, I yeah. need to think about that. <laughs> but basically, I would say it's special um, because we are helping to create these moments in a movie that are special and cannot be filmed basically. So this means we are, um, and, and our role is more of a supportive one. So if you don't see what we're doing, then the shot, the movie, the, the scene is working all the better. And if this is a special scene or a special, um, special moment in the movie, and we can support it in a way that people read the moment and not our work, then you could say that we are contributing to something special, but um, not being pointed out. So we are a part of the team, basically, then. And um, this is then, then great from our side, because we help to achieve something that just cannot be filmed, that, can, uh, that cannot be achieved in reality. But we made it, um, we brought it into reality. And this is, I think, maybe the definition of that. Although, of course, uh, there's still that it's not pointed out. Um, it's kind of contradicting the special part. <laughs> because aspects of the of the scene are special so the writing probably the acting the lighting everything contributed to the special moment um so it's um probably not entirely correct to point out this special effect then 
<laughs> I feel terrible now. I feel absolutely terrible <laughs> yeah. having said that. So, um, Don't rebrand yourself as sort of dull effects. That's not going to work well commercially. Stick with what works. Um, Stop talking. This feels like a pause, a preemptive pause to the episode. Yes. So uh, we've stopped talking for the moment about whatever. Well, we stopped talking, talking then, and now yes. we're going to talk now about, about Twitter um, and about social media, I guess, more broadly. Yeah. Well, just the basic stuff as usual, everybody. Please do follow us on Twitter. If you have Twitter, Fananim Research, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research. Follow us on Facebook, Fantasy Animation. Um, you can find it um, in the groups in the... Are we a group or a... Or a or An a, event or I a... I don't know. We're one of those. You'll find yeah. us. We've got a lovely... Um, logo, you, you'll see us. Um, you can, um, what else can they do, Chris? They can visit the website. Uh, they can get in touch via the website um, uh, and kind of look at our back catalogue, if yes. you like, our greatest hits of yes. podcasts, of blogs. Um, if you'd like to contribute to the blog, then please do um, get in contact via social media as we'd love to hear from you. Uh, tell what else you can do. You can subscribe to the podcast yes. on whatever format you're on. So if you're on um, uh, anything other than um, Apple Music, you simply subscribe and that will um, boost our rankings and, our, and on the algorithms will give us a helping hand and that will mean more people will see us. So that would be really handy. And if you are on Apple uh, Podcasts, I believe it's called these days, um, give us a quick star rating and maybe an actual little review. Just little a couple comment. of sentences. We've, 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 the star ratings are, are coming in, which is really great. We could do with another review just to freshen things up a little yeah. bit. Um, um, it, look, it looks like at the moment people have stopped listening. So that's not good. Yes. Uh, we want it to look like... Uh, Everyone is enjoying it, even if that is not the case. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm this close to writing a review of it myself, and we don't want that. <laughs> no, we don't want that. Um, if you do write a review yourself, what code word um, would you will you put in it so that people know it's got that desperate and we really need your help? Um, that's a good question. Uh, uh, Operation Bakshi. Operation Bakshi. Operation Bakshi. Operation Bakshi. If Chris has to resort to Operation Bakshi, we've got problems. So please um, go out there and do it yourself. Thanks. Right, we'll shut up and not shut up, but keep talking about other things. But I think um, what what you just said there, uh, Dominic, was really interesting about sort of in terms of how it relates to sort of the work we, we do in fantasy theory, which is that like we constantly have this perennial debate about is fantasy a type of storytelling that is kind of uh, escapist and therefore kind of conservative and, you know, we shouldn't really be watching it because it's not helping us deal with the real world and not helping us sort of learn or, you know, grow or that kind of stuff. Or is a fantasy able to bring into being, bring into existence ideas and thoughts and ways of viewing the world that perhaps we wouldn't have conceived of without fantasy? And it sounds like, you know, you could think of VFX in a similar way in that in the, when, when it does the job right, it allows a viewer to feel like they're seeing something real that can't be real and therefore bringing into the world, bringing into possibility um, a way of being and not to be too romantic about it. But there's quite a lot of history of like, you know, uh, the classic anecdote is like, you know, the Star Trek doors were, were, were in the first series were... Um, you know, they pulled them on rope, right? And then someone went, well, why don't we just put those in, why don't we just make those and put them in supermarkets because um, because they work really well. Like, And that idea of, of something that we see and that feels real and seems to make sense, inspiring actual thought and actual sort of action in the world. Um, long rambling sort of summation, I know, but like, I, I think what it relates to with Captain Marvel is it, it's a film about the sort of very, very real political power of fantasy um, because the movie is about lots of characters who are who who other characters cannot imagine them being more than what they are and that's true of you know carol danvers the character that's true of um of you know the the various sort of members of shield and it's also true of um of of the cat of um because the cat is exactly that it's a cat that people can't imagine not being a cat and then it turns out it isn't a cat and it's something else entirely um, so I'm interested in like um, the the fact that your work is essentially doing the job of, of of well we sort of said special but of the superhero you are the people that make the superhero special um, you are the super in the in the hero otherwise they're just running around looking at green screen hitting tennis balls and that's not helpful <laughs> is it um, you know so so I, I don't know did you, when when the project came about. Were you sort of aware of, of the sort of, you know, I guess political or or significance of the, the fact that Marvel is finally having had lots of pressure for decades making a sort of female-centered superhero movie? And did you feel any sense of that? Or was it like, oh, great, Marvel are back again. We're, we, here we go again. And we just love working with Marvel. 
No, I remember I was super excited to hear about this. And, and I think the guys back then looked at me in a strange way, like, okay, why do you find it cool? <laughs> um, so we, we were we were doing some effects tests on the blast and, and also her, what we called the binary effect. So where she would kind of like light up. Um, and this was the first thing I saw, I think, from the movie. And, and I really got super excited because it was finally a female superhero. Like, I don't know, with Black Widow, it was always different in the movies because she was kind of like a sidekick, I want to say. Mm -hmm. um, and now yeah. there was this woman finally and she would kick ass. And yeah, I really love that notion. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm going to well I'm now scared to say anything about special effects so that's <laughs> terrifying um, but no I, I guess I guess a lot of the writing around <clears throat> certainly the film when it came out was about its de-aging effects and and um, and the visibility of that and the pleasure of sort of seeing actors who had been de-aged because obviously the film is set in you know set in many worlds but when it's on Earth it's set in the mid 1990s um, and you get I, I think I squealed when I saw a blockbuster video sign and i thought oh yeah okay i remember, I remember that um but obviously the part of the, the the vfx around the film or the discourse around the film was largely about this this de-aging that up to this point had sort of slowly been growing and growing and here we were going to get a film where you had um two characters visibly de-aged um within a broader narrative that is about shape-shifting and it's you know and the superhero genre more broadly is about masquerade and double identities and metamorphosis and all that sort of thing and actually goose fits entirely within that idea because it's a dangerous alien that's masquerading as a domestic cat and so actually it's it's sort of the cat in itself is if 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 Alex is saying that your job as VFX artist is to is to be the superheroes, you're kind of creating the the super, and you talked about the glow and the sort of early sort of tests and things like this. Um, but what you're also trying to do is create effects, yeah, that aren't are, are, are of a different level of visibility or a different that are no less special. He says, but like different levels of visibility. Um, and for a film that was all about a certain kind of de-aging effect what's really nice is that you can you can create an effect like goose that's actually not in service of a spectacle in the same way but is actually in service of of realism and coherency and believability and persuasiveness and all those kinds of credibility and authenticity all these ideas um that certainly in a superhero film can get a bit lost because we're out in fantasy worlds we are on the moon we are on in space and actually your your kind of work on the one hand fits in with the superheroes core themes about masquerade as i said and double identities um but also it's it's a it's a visual effect that is kind of integral to the way that we read effect like films you know the, the the coherency of the fictional world um because if that if the if the fictional world wasn't coherent we wouldn't believe the rest of it and so it kind of needs the film needs what you're doing at the level of effects to be able to kind of create this believable world um in in juxtaposition with these broader sort of visual visual effects um so yeah so yeah hopefully i've redeemed myself with regards to the comment about special <laughs> no, um, I think that's totally but, yeah. just just to add to that because <laughs> i'd like to i'd like to hear some just some production stuff on this would be like the one thing i thought of um when i asked the question earlier about sort of the different levels of goose was that of course as soon as i said it out loud of course the shots of samuel m jackson holding goose are actually more complicated than I just said because of course Samuel L. Jackson is a digital character in the movie and I'm assuming that was done by a different effects house but I hadn't thought about it but of course you're dealing with the cat but the cat is the thing that I'm not looking at when I'm looking at Samuel L. Jackson holding a cat because I'm too busy worrying about the fact that I'm looking at a younger Samuel L. Jackson holding a cat so could you just talk you know on a practical level are those shots Samuel L. Jackson wearing a green suit or are they um, you know just him in normal thing how do you deal with that footage and then put the cat in there and, and sort of play with that idea so basically samuel L. jackson was usually himself um and he was um made younger by uh, another company um yeah. this was lola right? lola, yeah. lola yeah um was doing the the load of the shots um, amongst a few other companies 
And what they did is basically um, they did amazing tests on how he would look as a younger character. He they were referencing a lot of movies and so on. And um, parts of this was a slightly correction of some posture um, and then slimming down some parts and so on. And this is then a little bit troublesome for us for interaction, of course. Um, but um, since uh, Marvel is very aware of how visual effects work, they tried to get as good intersection points. So for example, that the um, fingers were not slimmed down overly or that the arm position was not changed so that we basically could rely and start already working on um, the original age Samuel Jackson while the other company was doing the um, youthening of Samuel Jackson. And then we basically had already our cut point and um, later on we exchanged. Sometimes there was a little bit of um, adjusting the shadows a bit or warping some lines, but we could already move far, uh, far forward because we had these intersection points between our work. Ah, so you're always in sort of dialogue with these other, because you mentioned the word vendors at the start in terms of the mm -hmm. way that, so are you always in kind of contact with these different students in exactly the way that you've described, that you're you're creating shots and they get sent off and you're and there's that sort of, there's that dialogue between different, vendors in the in that in the production of the film usually this is being taken over by the client vfx supervisor who was chris townsend on this movie and um we sometimes have an overlap where we would work on the same shot as another vendor and then of course it was encouraged that we also get in touch to the other company and maybe talk about any issues that there are but i think um yeah chris did a really good job in in terms of preparing those things that would maybe hinder us from creating this wonderful cat image where he was already thinking about, okay, what are we going to do about the de-aging of Samuel L. Jackson while we also have the cat in there? Um, but yeah, I think uh, we had we had a couple of interactions with other vendors about some particular shots, and this is also continuing throughout on every movie, so it's, it's a really good relationship there. So is a part of you not a little bit annoyed that when the film came out, everyone's noticing the... Uh... Samuel L. Jackson stuff, but you've put equally a amount of labor into the cat. Oh, that's probably just a cat. That's fine. You know, all that sort of stuff. I think that was like one of the greatest compliments. I yeah. came out of the first screening and then a woman asked me, so what did you work on on the movie? And I told her like, oh, we did the cat. I was kind of phrasing it in this weird way. And then she was asking, oh, so you're an animal trainer. <laughs> and I explained, no, no, it was a CG cat in there. And she did not believe me. She was like, yeah, but where? It was a real cat. Like, what are you telling me? So this was a great compliment for me. <laughs> yeah, that's the best thing I've ever heard about the, the VFX. But again, it's this question of taste and, and, and connership and what we expect things well, what we expect effects to be. We don't expect effects to be a cat. We expect effects to be things that are visible and perhaps more towards, maybe this is this is this issue of fantasy than Alex, this we, ex we kind of conditioned or expect visual effects to be tied to the fantastic or to be tied to a fantasy. And actually, and, and maybe when Goose then becomes this, this multi-layered flurkin with these tentacles, that's where we go, oh yeah, that's, that's when the digital cat takes over. But actually the journey starts way before then and 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 again i think the role of con uh, connoisseurship and and what we expect things as audience to be affects and and the shock we find out that in fact you're not an animal trainer you are in fact a visual effects producer and and so there's something really interesting i think about about the audience's role in in assenting to the effect and to rationalize it and to qualify it and and again this is maybe a, a, a kind of a, a further link to, to fantasy um i know we yeah, just just obviously we're, we're sort of moving i guess towards a, a conclusion but i think normally when we when we speak to a visual effects artist we me and alex both want to know and you spoke a little bit about this earlier christine this uh, your favorite shots on the on the film or, or shots where that were the most troublesome or shots that you're most proud of, even if they're just sort of throwaway shots that the camera doesn't linger on a lot. But yeah, I just wondered for both of you, is there a particular shot or a particular sequence or a scene or even just a movement of an eyeball that is something that you are particularly proud of or, or something that you always sort of go back you're both laughing so either you've already been asked this question <laughs> fifty thousand times in a knowing manner <laughs> yeah yeah or uh you're now going to think of something wacky to say about your favorite effect or something but um yeah any favorite moments in the film i think mine is the the fight sequence in the scroll battleship when then all of a sudden this like wall is melting and she's like barely holding on and yeah i love this because there was like the visual effects that we would also see in there and it was so colorful and so well done i don't know that was one of my favorite moments i think 
I have to, I also agree. Um, I agree the whole sequence with the escape from the Skrull battleship because I think there's a lot of individual effects that took a lot of development and that I think most people didn't see. And I really like the Tesseract vomiting cat at the end of the show. <laughs> yes, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. Because um, this is obviously a, a pivotal... This is what I mean about the film. So the film is interesting for lots of reasons. It's it's this last release before the um, this this fe- feature film, Avengers Endgame. It, obviously, at the beginning, it pays reference to, to Stan Lee in the opening credits, and you have the sort of Marvel logo with with images of of sort of Stan Lee. It's the twenty first film in the in the series, and and it's as for, for reasons that Alex said and and you mentioned. You know, this is really important, a female centered movie within a series of films that have certainly um, not been noted for their their sort of female characters in the, in the same way. Um, but also the the kind of post credits post credits post credit sequence where the the cat um decides it would like to regurgitate the, the tesseract is obviously a really important moment for setting up what's going to happen in the the next uh, movie but um so this obviously comes with its own challenges because presumably i mean is this is was this a sequence that you worked on the the vomiting Am I going to call it the vomiting tesseract? I have. I've called it that. Yeah. Um, and there were so, YouTube videos as well, so it's the same. Okay, good, good. So, um, so yeah, so obviously that's a different kind of sequence because you've got to. You're you're not going for believability in the same way. You're 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 trying to be comedians in the way that you construct that sequence because it is, it's a it's a an exclamation point at the end of the film. So yeah can we can you just tell me just tell me anything about that vomiting tesseract sequence that that would be fun for me to know because i think it's uh yeah it's a really important moment that sort of sets and it's comedy and it's playful but it's also um presumably came with its own challenges because it's offering something different what was really nice about this is that it kind of um this was coming this was kind of a late coming shot and we were in a situation where more and more people were basically done with their main work and um, they were um, still there and um, because the movie was not done. And we had, I think every effects artist was tasked with creating the spit and vomit so that they basically, it was a little bit of a challenge in the department. Um, they submitted references. I think one artist even added macaroni in there. Um, it was really, it was somehow disgusting but super funny reviews because i saw how everybody had fun <laughs> and it was uh, this internal challenge it was a friendly challenge so basically at one point we settled for a in-between version i would say um but it was really great to see how the team enjoyed doing this um because it was just like yeah it was like 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 the context the movie is over and we still have a little bit of time so we have um some fun with that i i, I think that's the, the, uh, the precious memory i have with this <laughs> and it looks hilarious. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I, I just remember that there was a there was a comment from somebody that was about like, can we open the mouth wide enough so that the tesseract comes out? And I was like, oh no, now we have to touch the model again. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't even know how we solved it. It was uh, I don't know. I think we solved it. On the side. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Okay. Yeah. How far can a CGI photorealistic cat's mouth open is a question I might set in my seminars uh, next week for my students to consider. Uh, <laughs> uh, really great. Really great. Uh, I want, I want, because, because I'm allowed to, and I'm, because I've got the mic and I like to hog it very occasionally, I just want to share my favorite, mo- well, my favorite moment in the movie is when Goose is, um, stuck on the stuck on the, the ceiling so um, we've, we've already talked about that so my second favorite moment in the movie um isn't featuring goose but it but it i think refers to a lot of the things we've already talked about today i think it's a really interesting moment and it's the moment where um uh carol sort of um she's just done the big climactic battle in space and it's absolutely insane this battle and there's all this shooting and and, and firing and it's sort of marvel ends on steroids yeah everyone's exploding everyone's glowing everyone's um cgi tastic and visual effects tastic and then she lands on earth and and jude law says let's have a fight to the death and you will uh you know finally will make your match and she just sort of pushes him um with her powers over on the ground and just says i have nothing to prove to you and walks away and i think the moment's really great because it works on on 
I on the two levels I think this movie works on, and I think this is one of the reasons I really want to get you guys on the podcast to chat about it. Because on one level, it's obviously a really, really important sort of gender statement about like I have nothing to prove to you, this man who's abused me, who's um, sort of mentally abused me, and and I don't need to engage with this anymore, and I'm strong enough and I'm independent enough to walk away. But on another level, it's sort of playing with with the Marvel genre um, in the sense that we've got we've got a moment that looks like it's going to be that bit in the Marvel movie where all the villains sort of jump into the air a lot, fly around a lot, and perhaps an island lifts up and, and flies off into space. And that's obviously very tri- generalizing, but there was this sort of undercurrent of like, are we going to keep doing the space battle thing at the end of the Marvel movies? And this is a lovely, quiet, but strong moment. And it defi- and it helps the film define what power really means. Um, uh, and... And power for Carol is not like they kept saying before the film came out that she is the most powerful being in this in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And you think what that means is that she's going to be able to shoot lasers out of her eyes and turn into a great green monster and explode 80,000 ships at the same time, which she is able to do and does to a plum. But really, her power is that she is able to sort of stand up to her abuser and go, no, and walk away. And I think that teaches something up. Uh, uh, us audiences about what we value in terms of like in terms of in terms of what's special what's super and i think what your work therefore on the movie is great is because it's a moment in the movie people might not know is there but is a absolute microcosm to to what we should appreciate about the movie because it's exactly the same thing with goose goose must be appreciated because not only is it not just a cat it's a cat with a really key moment in the history of narrative in terms of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So I know I rambled there, but I just wanted to like, uh, I think I think part of being a VFX artist on this movie um, is, is, is that you have helped to bring into a very different vision of what power looks like. Um, and I think that's a really, really, you know, wonderful thing. And I, I hopefully put a spring in your step when you were, when you were working on the piece, um, uh, cause it was a really great thing to see. Um, so thank you. Um, uh, Chris, do we have any final thoughts on the movie we should uh, deal with before um, we, we let our guests um, get on with their lives after entertaining us so wryly? Um, uh, no, I mean, I, I was I was frantically writing things things down in relation to sort of, the, I suppose, the technical elements and the, and the, and the language around, uh, around visual effects as an industry, whether it's vendors, whether it's assets. Um, you talked about, yeah, the previs that was provided by, by Marvel or the client and your role of interpretation. I thought that was really kind of really interesting. I've also written realistic cat versus character cat, which I really like as a distinction between, between well, one, it's a distinction of visual in some way, but it also has these kind of connotations of the performance, I think, and, and your role as performers, which, as I said earlier, is this idea of performance and acting within an animation context is very thorny, and, and where do we attribute acting uh, and, and the locus of performance? And obviously, in your case, you're creating a character that isn't mindful and isn't um, sort of autonomous, but you're trying to create the illusion that the that this character and this movement is is all motivated, whether that's from the movement of the body to the eyes. And so, yeah, I, I'm I'm kind of intrigued by by all of this, the industrial side of visual effects imagery, as much as I am the sort of spectatorship of it and how we register. So, um, yeah, thank you very much for for yeah talking to me about why you're and convincing me as to why you're so special. <laughs> <laughs> Tell you what, let's ask. Let's ask the the, the you know. We, we should pretend we're going to be journalists for a second. Can you tell us anything about what you've worked on since, or what you're working on now? Can you tease us with anything, or are you going to slam the door in our face and tell us to wait for a couple of years to see it? I think we cannot say too much. We're working on a couple of more exciting um, projects right now. There is one thing though that I think Dominic can mention from a past. Um, yeah. So I recently finished working on uh, Black Widow. So which is. Probably going to be seen next year, as far as I know. <laughs> okay, well, we're really excited to see it. And, you know, we'll have to have you back on the show and we'll do a companion because that would be really, really great thing to compare. What a wonderful um, thing to have worked on. Terrific. Thank you. Um, thank you, Christine. And thank you, Dominic, for coming on the show. We really, really do appreciate it uh, and sharing your, your thoughts. I'm learning more and more about how this actually works in practice rather than just in theory. So it's really great to talk to you. 
Um, so thank you very much. Thank you. If, if people were interested in Trickster's work or if they wanted to find more about the studio, is there um, a website they can visit or is there some social media they could follow or anything like that? Um, do, do let them know. Yeah. yeah, there's all of that. There's www.trickster.de and we are also just upgrading this website. So there's some new stuff coming. Um, and yeah, you can check out our reels and the work we've done so far. Great, great. Please do give them a follow and, and, and have a look on the website because there's lots of great stuff on here. Um, a very a great back catalog to be very proud of. So so congratulations. Um, that's been us for another week. Uh, right. A uh, very quick bit of admin, of course. Um, you can follow us at Fantasy Anim, Fan Anim Research, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research um, at Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, and Reddit, as well as you can email us at fananimresearch at gmail.com. Of course, there's the website, fantasy-animation.org, and we are um, delighted to um, share this episode as well as future um, blog posts that we've featured on Captain Marvel. So do check those out. Um, Chris, uh, are you a Flurgan or are you a human? Uh, it's 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 up in the air. I, I'm certainly, well, I'm trying to decide whether I'm um, a realistic human or a character human. So that's, <laughs> that's, the, distinc- that's the distinction that I'm making. But um, yeah, so thank you, as, as Alex said, thank you, um, uh, Christine and Dominic, for sort of sharing that. And yeah, if, if listeners are... Um, intrigued further do check out some of the captain marvel stuff that's on the on the website or or pitch pitch a piece we'd love to i think marvel is something we've we've done a couple of episodes this is our i think this is our second we've, we've done uh, black panther and and um yeah delighted to sort of get a chance to do captain marvel which is a film i remember seeing at the cinema and loved and have, have kind of watched it since then and and so yeah i'm and i'm excited for black widow because i think there'll be a nice sort of partnership in different ways with regards to how we think about Marvel and, and that intersection with, with gender. So yeah, thank you very much. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm off to now hone my skills in, in being a character human. <laughs> thank you very thank much. Thank you very much. It was really cool. Thanks everyone. Uh, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. See you. Bye. 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 Bye.